copyright expired song you are listening to is Mr. Gallagher and Mr. Sheen by Ed Gallagher and oh hey Al Sheen I get it okay Ed Gallagher and Al Sheen were a vaudeville duo now I find vaudeville interesting I'm starting to understand that in sort of the same way that basically all modern music is descended from jazz basically all modern comedy is descended from vaudeville and Al Sheen and Ed Gallagher were a big vaudeville duo. This is kind of their theme song that we're listening to. And as it happened, Al Sheen was the uncle of the Marx Brothers. So as I said, all comedy is kind of descended from vaudeville. Well, the Marx Brothers are quite literally descended from vaudeville, specifically Al Sheen. So let me just, I, I want to kind of think out loud about this era of comedy. Vaudeville, the Marx Brothers, who were, you know, quite literally one generation removed from vaudeville, uh, so I've seen Marx Brothers movies. I've watched Marx Brothers movies. I've seen vaudeville. Uh, I watch them and I often think, that is funny. Or I will think, that is well done. I never laugh. I honestly, like, I'm not going to be one of these comedians who's like, oh, the Marx Brothers, so hilarious. It's like, no, I can appreciate it on an intellectual level. To think that I would laugh out loud at that stuff these days, it's... You know, honestly, it's a little insulting. I'm not going to laugh at that stuff. And and that's interesting, I think. Why is it that I can look at it and think that is well done, but still not want to laugh? Here's why. Join me, please, as I journey way up my ass with theories of comedy. I think what's going on is this. Most comedy is observational. Most comedy, as I have said before on this podcast, most comedy is pointing to stuff and saying, that's dumb. So... For a comedian working a long time ago, whatever they're observing, I am already aware of that thing. That thing isn't new to me or interesting to me because I'm living 90 years in the future. So, obviously, the thing they're observing is is probably something I already know. And that's why I don't laugh. I think I can watch that stuff and recognize it as clever, as well done. I mean, Groucho Marx was, you know, a master of the English language. But I can always see where he's going because I am living way, way, way in the future. So I have seen it before. And this also makes me think about the question of what is a hack? You hear that phrase all the time in comedy, a hack. A hack, I think, is someone who's doing something that's been done before. Maybe their execution is great. Maybe their performance is great. But when I say someone's a hack, well, I think what I'm saying is, yeah, I've seen that before. So there's that thought. Starting the podcast with a little theorizing about the origins of comedy. Without a doubt, the least productive way you could possibly spend your time. Hello! Welcome to the I Might Be Wrong podcast. This is the audio component of my Substack, which can be found at imightbewrong.substack.com. I'm, I'm doing something a little bit different today because this week's article was a little on the short side, so I'm going to read this week's article, and then I'm also going to read a very dumb thing that I wrote about the Cohen brothers. So I will get to the second article second, but let me do the first article first, and that is an article called Are You Taking Advantage of the New Freedoms? Which is a Cohen brothers reference. That is a line from the movie A Serious Man. Anyway, this piece is about remote work. You know, when you write about the news, as I do, so much of what you write is negative. As they say, a truck not on fire is not news. 
And that's very true. So I try, when I can, to find a way to write about good things that are happening, because good things do happen in the world, even though the news often makes it seem not that way. I try to write about good things where I can find them, and I do think that the sudden switch to remote work, which is affecting a lot of people, it's not affecting everybody, but it is affecting a lot of people, I think it's good to point out that on the balance, this change, I think, is a good thing. So the title is, Are You Taking Advantage of the New Freedoms? Subheading, Let's Recognize That Working From Home Sort of Rules. In the 14th century, the Black Death led to higher wages across Europe. And of course it did. You know what's a strong negotiating position? I am the only blacksmith left in Europe is a strong negotiating position. When the choices are either you or a flaming pile of corpses in the town square, you pretty much get to name your price. All across Europe, serfdom was dismantled. Social scientists have found that regions hit hardest by the pandemic were more democratic even centuries later. The powerful pushed back against runaway labor prices by passing, oh, they always do this, a law pegging prices to pre-pandemic levels, which ended up being an early example of price controls being an ineffective way to fight inflation. Of course, in fairness, back then they did not have 700 years of evidence showing that that doesn't work. These days we have less of an excuse. Anyway, I digress. COVID will not result in the same level of societal reshuffling as the Black Death did. But it has caused changes. The most obvious one, I think, is that for many people, remote work is here to stay. Before the pandemic, remote work was a slightly strange and possibly suspect way of doing things, kind of like getting a culinary degree by mail. But now, for many people, remote work is the norm. And I think we might actually underappreciate what a life upgrade that is for a lot of people. Economists always struggle with stuff they can't quantify. There is one measure, utility, that tries to capture literally anything in the world that a person might value. So, the look of wonder in a child's eye, being brought to tears by a beautiful piece of music, Embracing another human being and knowing, not feeling, knowing that you are not alone in the universe. Yeah, that's utility. Cram all that crap under you. It is not as good of a measure as, say, I, which is interest. We know what that number is. You can look up the federal funds rate right now. Utility is economists' attempt to capture comfort, happiness, the specialness of human connection, all that bullshit that economists really aren't comfortable with, generally speaking, that is utility. Cram that crap under you. In my opinion, working from home sends utility through the roof. It starts with the small things, sweatpants, comfy socks, scented candles, sofas, snacks, cat access, optional, a permissive, if context-dependent policy regarding flatulence. And, this is huge, full control of the thermostat. You can also, and this ain't bad either, take a nap sometimes. We have accepted, as we should, that kindergartners 
need to curl up on a little mat and snooze in the afternoon so that they are not monstrous little fucks for the rest of the day. And yet, we have stubbornly failed to recognize that this dynamic does not end at age five or ever. The society-wide pig-headedness about napping is the reason why curling up on a mat after lunch and catching 40 winks for the long-term good of the company is currently considered career-limiting. But you can do it if you're working from home. Not having to commute is also a godsend. Commuting is expensive, time-consuming, bad for the environment, and it does make you want to murder people. I am, generally speaking, a calm person, but shitty drivers and people who violate subway norms push me closer to becoming Javier Bardem's character in No Country for Old Men than I would like to admit. I am totally unsurprised by the many, many studies that link less commuting to more happiness. Eliminating my commute when I'm able to work from home has reduced to zero the number of times that I come home from work drained, starving, and having just killed three people. Working from home also provides more flexibility. Do you need to let in the plumber? Do you need to watch a sick kid? Do you need to sleep off a hangover? All of this and much more is possible when you are working from home. I have always found it a little bit insane that most businesses try to schedule appointments Monday to Friday from 9 to 5. That is the exact times when people are least likely to be available. Barbershops have known for centuries that they should be open on weekends, but Verizon, market cap $194 billion, will never figure it the fuck out. Working from home makes routine chores more manageable and eliminates the humiliating process of having to ask your boss if you may pretty please leave early to drive your friend home from dental surgery. The main argument against working from home, of course, is that it is bad for productivity. I understand this argument, but I think that it badly underestimates my ability to sit at a desk and to do absolutely fucking nothing. I have been capable of sitting at a desk and appearing productive while actually doing jack fucking shit since at least since Minesweeper became part of the standard Windows bundle in the 1990s. At this point, appearing to do something while actually doing nothing, that might be my most highly developed skill. I should probably put it on my resume. To those people who believe that trapping me in an office, that you are paying for, by the way, if you believe that that will make me more productive, I say, I don't know who the fuck you think you're dealing with, but I have not yet begun to slack off. Now, ultimately, most jobs come down to deliverables. You either produce or you do not. If an employee makes the thing that they're supposed to make, who really cares whether they made it in an office or at home? In some cases, the freedom to work from home will actually improve the quality of the deliverable. For example, I am a writer, an artist, you see. It is a somewhat unusual job whose trappings are not universally understood as expressed by this scene from Barton Fink because once you're doing a thousand Coen Brothers references, you might as well do a thousand one. 
Here's Barton Fink pretty much summing up how writers see the world. I'm a writer, you monsters! I create! I create for a living! I'm a creator! I am a creator! This is my uniform! This is how I serve the common man! My point is, writers are whiny narcissists who must be free to indulge our process. An office environment is not always conducive to that process, especially the part of the process that involves taking a bunch of drugs and staying up until 4 a.m., which I should mention is not how I do it, but I am also not very successful. In fact, I would say that probably not many people are inspired by corporate offices. I doubt there are many modern-day William Wordsworths surrounding themselves with the splendor of an office and producing works like I Wandered Lonely as an IT Manager that see or an array of Lenovo tech when all at once I saw a laptop alone amidst the sea of cubicles upon which unapproved software twas installed hearkening the revival of mandatory anti-malware training. End scene. I am known for my verse. Anyway, unfortunately, it is mostly only white-collar fields that get to benefit from this shift to home work. So let's take a moment and recognize that anyone whose job requires that they actually show up in person is, unfortunately, missing out on this working in comfy socks renaissance. And that does suck. It does, to me, seem like yet another argument for progressive taxes to fund things like family leave and health insurance, although I digress. For what it's worth, by the way, being on a comedy writing staff, as I am once again, is a job that does sort of need to happen in person. Brainstorming over Zoom is like that old SNL bit. I encourage you to Google this. It's on YouTube. It's called Henley and Styles. And the bit is that they're trying to do a vaudeville routine via satellite with all the pauses that entails. Trying to do a table session over Zoom is a lot like that. So please pity us poor blue-collar comedy writers. We are basically the same as construction workers or nurses. Just a bunch of salt-of-the-earth Joes and Joannas. Rolling up our sleeves and doing the jobs that America needs done. Yep. Truck drivers, waitresses, staff writers on Young Sheldon, peas in a pod we are. Anyway, in my many years at EPA, I sometimes wondered why we weren't allowed to work from home. This was the mid-2000s and the early 2010s when laptops started to replace desktops and video chat ceased to be a guaranteed exercise in blurry frustration. Reducing carbon output through travel and other energy use was sort of important to EPA, as you might deduce, and yet the culture of working from home never really took root. I wondered what might force a change, and now I know. COVID forced a change. It is a change that I think is on the balance a good thing. Those of us who are lucky enough to partake should recognize that improvement. Economists might struggle to quantify 
the value of working in comfy pants and fuzzy socks, but that doesn't make the effect any less real. And that's the first half of the episode. That was a nice positive one. I wasn't saying how dare you to anyone or saying we're fucked. It was a nice change of pace. I uh, I kind of liked it. I'll probably never do it again. Anyway, the second half of the podcast is this very silly article that I wrote as Ethan Cohen. And by the way, even though <laughs> I thought it was awfully damn clear when I wrote this article that it was a bit, and I actually wrote at the bottom of the article, this is a bit. Ethan Cohen had nothing to do with it. There were still two people in the comments section who didn't get it. It is like the onion. Some people just do not understand the concept of parody. Pretty remarkable. Anyway, this is an article written in Ethan Cohen's voice. I even went so far as to get a public domain photo of him and make it the columnist avatar so as to complete the illusion, but it was, of course, me writing. And it's written in Ethan Cohen's voice. Ethan Cohen's voice, if you've ever heard him speak, uh, he just sounds like some fucking guy. Well, guess what? I just sound like some fucking guy, so I'm going to read it in my voice. And the title is Joel Cohen's The Tragedy of Macbeth as reviewed by Ethan Cohen. And Ethan Cohen's byline is, Ethan Cohen is a four-time Oscar winner who recently joined, I might be wrong, as junior film critic. The eagle-eyed amongst you will notice that I have made Paula Fox senior film critic. <clears throat> In the tragedy of Macbeth, longtime Hollywood presence Joel Cohen, who has 18 prior films to his credit, takes sole creative control of a project for the very first time. The result, not unlike the tale of Macbeth itself, is a tragedy of epic proportions. In the interest of full disclosure, my editor has requested that I mention that I was Mr. Cohen's writing partner, producer, and creative collaborator on the aforementioned 18 films. I am also his brother. We parted ways prior to Macbeth, in a split that the press has described as completely amicable. Despite my prior association with Mr. Cohen, I feel that I am entirely capable of reviewing his work in a fair and objective way. Macbeth is Joel Cohen's shittiest movie by several billion light years. If all the elephants in all the world crapped into the same canyon for a hundred years, you would still not have a pile of shit half as large as Joel Cohen's dumb-as-a-dog-dick rendering of this classic tale. One can't watch Macbeth without getting the sense that something is missing. Some inspired element that gave Mr. Cohen's earlier work an aura of ebullient genius is absent this time. The wit, the verve, the undeniable rugged machismo that characterized the other 18 films in which he happened to be involved are nowhere to be found here. Ultimately, one must conclude that what's lacking is talent itself. Consider, if you will, 
the very decision to adapt Macbeth. The choice belies deep insecurity. Mr. Cohen seems, on some level, to understand that he has the talent God gave a balloon full of piss. And he therefore needs to latch on to more talented artists, like a lamprey sucking the life out of a majestic blue whale. A less insecure director might have been satisfied with a less esteemed piece of intellectual property. But Mr. Cohen glommed on to perhaps the best-known play by the world's most renowned playwright in a move that screams, Help! The no-talent police are right around the corner! Please someone rescue me before I am exposed as a fraud who somehow fell ass-first into a movie career. If the decision to take on Macbeth suggests that Mr. Cohen is a sad wannabe flailing for credibility, the choice to film in black and white proves the case beyond any reasonable doubt. In a move that would get you kicked out of Film 101 at the DeVry Institute of Mediocrity, Mr. Cohen renders the Bard's tale in black and white using a 4 to 3 aspect ratio as if that alone makes you Akira fucking Kurosawa. Though black and white can occasionally be an inspired choice, 2001's The Man Who Wasn't There comes to mind, the only way in which this gambit might have been anything other than a desperately pretentious ploy is that it is possible that Mr. Cohen was simply too dumb to know that color film exists. Or maybe he thought, hmm, Shakespeare's old, black and white is old, I'll film in black and white, just like they did back in Shakespeare times. Complete fucking moron. Mr. Cohen's obvious hackery drags the actors down. Denzel Washington delivers a fiery performance, but it is worth noting that Mr. Washington makes fun of Joel behind his back and says that he walks funny. One would think that Frances McDormand might deliver the performance of a lifetime, considering that she, much like Lady Macbeth, is married to a deceitful loser who can only get ahead by cheating, Joel Cohen. And yet... Miss McDormand is far from her best. She has been excellent before. She was great in Fargo. She was outstanding in that one where she shits in a bucket. And she was also brilliant last Thanksgiving when we were playing Cranium. And she and I got all the star performer ones, like, immediately. One can only assume that she was dragged down by the oppressive weight of being married to a man whom all the kids used to call Soggy Bottom Joel because of the time he got diarrhea on the monkey bars. If one looks closely, signs that this abomination was coming from Mr. Cohen were there. Few hints can be found in his film work. Some benevolent force was clearly papering over his incompetence, but anyone familiar with Mr. Cohen's long-established patterns of behavior could see that this was due. The tragedy of Macbeth is the work of a fraud and a narcissist, a man who deceives others to serve his own needs. These habits don't emerge fully formed in adults. They can be found in childhood, early childhood. For example, 
September 1963, when I happened to know that Mr. Cohen borrowed a light bright that a family member had just gotten for his birthday and then fucking broke it and then blamed it on the dog. And he did not even get in trouble for it. Consider what total bullshit that is. This family member had just gotten the light bright. And I don't mean just gotten a month ago or just gotten last week. I mean literally just got it earlier that day. This unnamed family member had not even really gotten to play with it. He had done one pattern, a choo-choo train, during the day in the kitchen where it's sunny, so that barely even counts. He let Joel borrow the light bright, even though Joel never let him borrow his Frank Gifford electric football game. No, never. Never once. No. Joel can't do that because Joel is a mean jerk. But Joel gets to borrow the light bright, and then he breaks the fucking light bright and blamed it on Mandy, as if a King Charles Spaniel can put a hole in a light bright exactly the size and the shape of a human foot. Besides, I fucking heard you jump off the top bunk and go, ow, Joel, and then you limped around all day like a dork. I cannot believe mom and dad bought your story. Although I guess actually I can because you are little Mr. Perfect who always gets his way. In summary, Joel Cohen's The Tragedy of Macbeth is a bowl full of lizard jizz from history's greatest sociopath. One wonders if a UN resolution calling for the phrase art house hack to be forcibly tattooed on Mr. Cohen's forehead might be called for. Joel Cohen has so thoroughly put his foot through this quote-unquote piece of art that it is really more of a piece of fart, (laughs) but this time he cannot blame his fuck-up on the dog. I give The Tragedy of Macbeth my lowest rating possible one half a smashed light bright out of five. And that is finally the episode. That Ethan Cohen piece, by the way, is one of the pieces that I have had go, you know, a little bit viral. Viral by my standards. And one thing I've learned from writing this blog is that there are basically two ways to get attention. Number one, as I've discussed before, conflict, 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 conflict. If you are producing political stuff and you want to attract eyeballs and tweets and clicks, just pick a side and hammer the other side as hard and as often as possible. It is a recipe that is as simple as grilled fucking cheese. Anybody can do it. But the other thing I've learned is that the second way to get attention is be funny. Be funny. I've had a few things do well like this piece because I guess it was a solid bit because there's nothing in there at all. It's just a bit. So I do think there's a lesson there. One that is definitely relevant to television where I am once again working. How do you make a hit? Just make it funny. Make the thing funny. People will watch. You don't really need to think any harder than that. Anyway, that is it for this week. I will be back next week with another episode and more useless thoughts on useless topics such as what is the nature of comedy, man? Until then, thank you very much for listening, and bye for now.